And yes, I'm not Jonathan Abernethy Berkeley, who was very nervous when he saw the order of service this morning. I also think Elijah and Elisha, Hannah and Anna, maybe we weren't the first to have names that would confuse. On Friday on the way to school, um, Jasmine said to me in the back, it's, it's nothing new, she's out, she'll not know. Um, it's nothing new, but she said to me, I'm scared, Daddy. And I said, what are you scared about this time? And she said, it's Friday the 13th. And it reminded me of a Friday the 13th. In 1985, I was leading um, a university UCCF church campaign in Ballywillan Presbyterian Church. And um, on Friday the 13th, being in a mission team, um, we were particularly interested in that particular date. And it was one of the most spectacular spiritual days of my life. I can remember it. I can remember the worship that we had. I can remember the missional work that we did. I can remember the conversations I had with people. I can remember us at the end of the day saying, for today superstition lay dead because we conquered the bad luck of Friday the 13th. I shared it this week with some of those that were on that team, and they remember it as this significant day, one of those days where it was that thinnest place between earth and heaven. 13th of September, a number of years later, I stood here and preached for Fitzroy. And on a Friday the 13th, as Union College blazed beside us, I was installed into this church. So I've always had a thing about the 13th. Let's just eyeball it and make it weep in its bad luck. That's got nothing to do with the sermon, but it might have. Because it seems to me that as we've read, as Stephen has just read this passage from John chapter 1, which is the series we're in if you're a visitor or you're just back from Yosemite Park or wherever, um, John's Gospels in some ways a little bit more ethereal we've had this prologue that's almost poetic and we might think of it in those kinds of terms until we listen closely to what we've just read because this is Feb- or this is friday the 13th bally willen memory written down as that kind of very distinct memoir the next day verse 29 starts the next day verse 35 starts These are almost diary entries, are they? Well, in verse 35, the next day John was there again with his two disciples. We know who one of them is from this passage, but we're not sure who the other one is. So is the other one John? Well, the detail of these moments may be the many commentators that say, yes, it is John. These are very vivid memories, it seems, of very specific things that happened the next day. I've told you before, that if I had a DeLorean, and if you are a parent and you have a Lego-loving son or daughter, then Tesco's is doing a great deal on Lego DeLorean. Our girls are just not at that stage. I would love to have bought that DeLorean, but I just didn't have the reason. If you have the reason, Stephen Orr has a good reason there, DeLorean Lego. If I had a DeLorean, where would I go back to? Well, since I last shared that story with you, which Who am I to think you remember me sharing it with you? I have another one. I would love to go back to that moment where I'm in the garden, thinking all is lost, 
and a commentator shouts that word that is one of the most precious words in my life, Aguero! And Manchester City won the league. Because Boyd and I were watching and I got off to the garden and missed the greatest moment in my football fandom. I'd love to go back to that moment and just have had the faith to stay in the front room. But if I had one moment to go back to in the whole history of the world, I think this is the moment I would like to be. And it's why it was great that Stephen laid it out for us. Mountain over there, Jerusalem up there, Jericho down there, on the desert floor, there's the river. It's all happening in that seemingly symbolic ways. Elijah, are you Elijah? Who is Elijah? Is this Elijah back from the dead? John the Baptist baptizing. There's a sense in the area that something might be tangibly happening to this people who are yearning for a Messiah. And then this greatest refrain in history is uttered. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For those folk around John the Baptist, as Jesus comes across the desert floor, I'm pointing that way and Stephen's sitting there saying, wrong way, Steve, I don't care what way it is, he's coming across the desert floor. And John utters those words, it's arrived. The moment, the lever on which not the history of the church, but the history of the world hinges on. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And already John in chapter 1 has got us to the end of his book, hasn't he? The Lamb of God. Already we see a sense of sacrifice, a sense of how this is going to end for Jesus. Right at the outset, he's telling us the ending. But as well as that, in his own book, he's taken his way back into the whole Old Testament idea because this Lamb of God image would just have resonated so many different ways with those who were looking around to see who this person is that John the Baptist is talking about. Lamb. I, uh, and thank you for your prayers, had a very bad last Sunday. Got to the doctor first thing Sunday morning. Antibiotics were kicking in, but I was a little more tired than normal this week, so that gave me more time to be around the house and to read. So I've been reading this Lamb of God thing, and let me tell you, I have read so much stuff that my head is fried. In fact, I said to Paul Lutton during Family Focus there, we need to get Desi up to explain all this Lamb stuff in the Old Testament. The Lamb of God would have just been... There's so many possibilities. Was it the lamb in Genesis chapter 22? You remember? Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him. The Lord will supply a lamb and did. Is it the Passover lamb? And John talks a lot about the Passover in this particular gospel as we're going to come to it and that whole Passover communion, Eucharist, Last Supper meeting. The Passover, they're thinking about Exodus, escape, freedom for the nation. Or is it Yom Kippur, which we, we didn't, but the Jewish people were celebrating over this weekend, uncontrived? Is it that giving for our sins in the temple? Is it Isaiah chapter 53? Lamb, led, to the lamb like, uh, led like a lamb to the slaughter, as Jeremiah 11 also talks about. 
all kinds of images of the lamb. And how the lamb and atonement and all this stuff happens is at the minute great debate in theological circles. And I watched lectures this week that I'm thinking, my word, they're going into the minutiae of this stuff and what is going on here? So many debates going on about what the atonement actually means or looks like. And so I thought, being who I am, that maybe the best way around trying to get all those lambs of the Old Testament into this text was actually just to, for once, look at the text. Because I think all the different ideas of the lamb of Yom Kippur and the lamb of Passover are all included in this great refrain, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Lamb of God, Passover, Yom Kippur, whichever Lamb it is, is going to take away the sin of the world. Going to take away the sin of the world. When we looked, and we're looking at the moment at the Gospel according to John, when we looked at the Gospel according to Leonard Cohen, he said, when the Prince of Peace was hanging from his final tree... He looked down at the people looking up at him. He saw faces of anger, envy, regret, despair, melancholy, animosity, hatred. He looked down at them and he felt a lever thrown in the universe and he knew that nothing would ever be the same again because this Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. My sin, your sin, redemption, atonement, forgiveness in our personal lives and also freedom and deliverance as in the Passover lamb for this people of God whose story continues in Jesus. Forgiveness, freedom takes away the sin of the world. I get into trouble in first Antrim. You won't be surprised at that. I'm always getting into trouble when I was assistant. Because I suggest when I was preaching this passage that world might mean every nation. That flags are the symbols of nations. Flags are the symbols of people and nations. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of all the people under all flags. So therefore, if we burn a flag, and I had in my hand at that time one of our political and church leaders uh, holding a burning uh, Irish flag then we burn a symbol of the people that Jesus died for. This Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, world here is very, very important. Because what's happening here is that this God interacting with people is moving away from just the people of Israel, just the Jewish nation, to everybody, all of us. Chapter 1, just before it, in verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but his his own did not receive him, the people of Israel. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To all who received him, opening it up to all, as indeed chapter 3 and verse 16 does, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, everyone anyone. This is a new community. This is the new community of God that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is going to become king for. N.T. Wright that we've been thinking about in this series already 
talks about how the cross is the place where Jesus is enthroned king, where God becomes king of his kingdom again. And as Derek Webb, the singer, sings, my first allegiance is not a flag or a country or a man. My first allegiance is not to democracy or blood. It's to a king and a kingdom. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world becomes king of this new kingdom. And we become members of it. All of us welcomed by faith. So, as a pastor this morning, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as your pastor I can say that through your faith you are forgiven. You are a child of God. You are redeemed Your sins have been atoned for in Christ. But also, as a prophetic leader, help us all. I can declare from this phrase, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that Jesus is king and that the exodus frees us from whatever empire we're under. And at the minute, that might be the empire of sectarianism in the country that we live in. The Passover lamb, the lamb of God, has something to contribute to the Haas talks that happened this week because we have a new king and a new kingdom. A kingdom that is not yet complete but is already on the way because God is enthroned. And so we come to today's statement that I've read out to you. Three words that we came up with that we thought needed to be put into the conversation. Humility, healing and hope humility much as i rack my brain when we come to the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world as one of the greatest refrains in our lives and in our faith and in our churches how is it that we can be anything but a humble people how is it that we've become quite an arrogant people how is it that when i talk to people they say it's nothing to do with us it's those other ones that have caused it they're the ones that have caused the pain it's the IRA, it's, it's, it's those shinners. They're the ones I have nothing to be sorry for. And you mentioned Cromwell, for instance, and they said, nothing to do with me. How are a people of God, a church people, anything under other than the most humble people? Because it took the Lamb of God to take away our sins. And we're aware of that and forgiveness, and confession, and repentance are at the heart of all that we believe. So the church, and the churches in our country, as we need humility on the streets across our city and beyond, are those who have the word, and the idea, and the theology, that might just make us all realize that we all need to humbly listen confess our part and forgive and love our enemies. John would later write in his letter, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. In our statement of hope and history, as church leaders, we want to say to all of our people, that we need to be prepared to confess humbly our part. Healing. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world 
is for the healing of the nations. All the nations. We are the bringers of God's will on earth. I mentioned already Twadell Avenue. Father Martin was telling me that he went up to do some shopping because he's moved from Lenadun um, up to um, Sacred Heart on the Old Park Road. And he went up to do his shopping in Twadell Avenue and he just couldn't believe what he faced. He said there was jeeps there and there was bands coming up there and there were people over there and he spoke to some of the people on what he would not turn but on his side of the community as the traditional divisions would be and they were pointing the finger across the army or the police lines to the other side and there, he said there was just no sense of possibility of... And he said, Steve, what do we do? Because we are those who need to bring healing. What struck me when Jim Wallace was here was how he changed love thy neighbor from some nice little sentimental refrain to this radically transformative idea. If the people on Twadell Avenue would love their neighbor as themselves, healing, restoration, kingdom, freedom, exodus, all wrapped up. Hannah's father had read some stuff that was going on in Northern Ireland and he sent me a, a message on Facebook saying, Steve, compromise. Do, we not, do they not see compromise as a bad word in Northern Ireland? And I was trying to share that back with him and he wrote this, a prayer almost for us and himself and his folk in Indiana who says it's just the same. God help us that we should love with your kind of unconditional love that is not dependent on how the object of that love responds the kind of love that can love our enemies. The kind of love that went all the way to the cross. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hannah's dad goes on, agape love. Yes, that's a powerful thing that waters the seeds of transformation in individuals and societies. I'm going to be praying that all you undertake together over the next months will be drenched, immersed in it. In an openly manifested, undeniably God-empowered way. As the Haas talks begin and this country needs healing, we are people who humbly come with the possibility to tangibly give of how healing might happen. And then finally, hope. Zumba happens upstairs, 9.30 on a Thursday morning. Get yourselves down there. Look how thin I now am compared to what I was. After Zumba, some of them, and I went this week, I don't often go, go down to Starbucks to sort of fill the calories back in that they've just taken off, I imagine. But no, we don't take the cream, we don't take the milk. It's all very, very uh, skinny milk. Um, we were standing in the queue last Thursday morning after Zumba, and there was a policeman standing behind us, and of course, <laughs> so funny, they all thought they were just coming to arrest me. So I got um, into conversation with him, and he told me, I said, is this your beat? And he said, no, no, no. He said, I'm from North Belfast. And I said, all oh, right. And before I could ask, well, what on earth are you doing here then? He said, I can't go in for coffee there. We have to go into the city center if we want to get a coffee because it's a little bit tense and we don't know what we might get in our coffee. You don't think of that, do you? That's happening in our city. And then I said to him, yeah, my friend Martin was up to Todell Avenue and he saw him. And I said, you know, the churches need to start maybe to listen and get involved. And he just said to me, why would you listen? He says, there's nobody listening. They're so hard-headed. Going to be here next year. They're going to be here the year after. It's just going to go on like this. And I thought, the hopelessness of that policeman. When I was sharing this with Father Martin, he said, what age was he? And I told him he was probably mid to late 20s. Then the cynicism and the sense of hopelessness 
hit us a little bit more, a bit, bit harder. And then yesterday on Facebook, when I was asking people to sign the statement, a good friend came on and said, I can't understand what signing this statement would do. Do you think our political leaders are going to change just because I put my name to this statement? So hopeless in his views of the situation that actually he wasn't even going to put his name on a statement. What we have to do is make a space for our politicians and our community leaders that maybe isn't there. That gives an alternative voice and the hope that something might change to those of us who are saying it's going to be the same this time next year or there's no point in signing this petition. Where will this community look for hope? Where has something happened that might give us hope? We got our title, of course, from Seamus Heaney's poem. History says don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. Heaney's hope's transcendent. Heaney's looking for a tidal wave that comes from outside those sides in Tordell Avenue or the policeman or my friend or the political leaders. When history seems to be that which chokes the hope that we might have, something from outside of us comes to give us supernatural hope. And we come with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world with the concrete foundational statement and action that gives us that hope. The lever is shifted. God is now king. Everything is different. Do we hope that? Do we believe that? Is that something that can contribute? We are no longer slaves to sectarianism. The blood has been put in the doorpost. The exodus is on the move. And do you see next week when Haas faces that Red Sea and there's all these people coming behind him and he's going, well, there's no way forward here. Maybe, just maybe, some people in our community will remember the possibility that we can get through that Red Sea. We are the people of God. Children of the King. Living in humility. Acting in healing. And hoping for difference because whatever direction he's coming across that desert floor, somebody has declared the greatest refrain in all of history that can make an impact on the Haast talks. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Our God, as a pastor, I long that each of us might know the Lamb of God has taken away our sin. That whatever we did, that sense of guilt or shame, that which we don't think we can fix in our own lives, that self-indulgence or selfishness that caused us to and holds us back, disturbs us. Lord, I pray that this morning the greatest refrain in all history might not just be a refrain, but might live in the hearts of the people of Fitzroy, 
and each one of us might know that the Lamb of God has taken away our sin. And then, Lord, as a church leader, making a statement that might make some impression in our community, I pray, Lord, that each one of us would believe that this refrain, that the truth of this refrain, that the entry of God into space and time history to live and to die and to be resurrected can make a difference on the streets of our city, can make a difference in our nation and in our world. We pray, Lord, that we might see this as God entering into our world and God becoming king. And that that new kingdom, if we come humbly, we have the power and the resources and the facilities of healing that can bring hope into what seems sometimes as hopeless. Take us, Lord, from here, forgiven within our own lives, knowing that forgiveness within our own lives, knowing the slate wiped clean and knowing that we are kingdom bringers in Belfast and Northern Ireland because we thank you that the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. Amen.